Hello, everyone. I'm Mahesh Varia. I'm a partner and head of incentives and remuneration at the UK law firm Travis Smith. I'm delighted to welcome you all to this podcast, which we have produced as part of Black History Month 2022. I'm really pleased to be joined by Leander Dolphin, managing partner of the US law firm Shipman and Goodwin, where we'll be talking about role modeling, allyship and much more. Before we hear from Leander, I just wanted to say how Leander and I first met. We met earlier this year at Harvard Law School. We were both delegates on the Leadership in Law Firms program. And I knew instantly as the class started that Leander was someone special because I noticed that Professor David Wilkins had specifically um, looked her up and said, I'm really pleased you're um, on this program. And I later on realized that that's because Leander is one of four black managing partners of a US law firm. So that's enough from me. We've got lots to cover today, so let's get going. Leander, why don't you tell us more about yourself? Oh, sure. Thank you very much for having me, Mahesh. And it was great to meet you earlier this year. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Leander Dolphin, and I am a school lawyer uh, by training, which means my clients are schools, um, public schools here in the US, uh, colleges and universities, and private schools. And I, for those clients, I do student issues as well as employment issues. I love the practice because on any given day, I can be a constitutional lawyer or I can be handling, you know, a termination of a, of a teacher um, or I could be negotiating a contract. So um, that's my practice. And for the last um, year and a half, I have been um, a managing partner at Shipman and Goodwin. Uh, I started at the firm in 2004. It was my first law job uh, after graduating from Howard University in Washington, DC. And um, I, I've been here most of my career. Uh, so I started here in 2004. Uh, I left for two years and then I returned. Uh, when I became an equity partner at our firm, I was the first uh, black woman to become an equity partner. Our firm has been around for over 100 years. We just celebrated our uh, centennial. And so it was uh, quite an occasion for me personally and professionally, and I think for my firm as well. Uh, and I was recently elected to um, be the managing partner. So that's sort of my career arc. That's uh, an amazing um, story, and we'll talk about your sort of where you are today when we talk later about role modeling. But I really wanted to sort of start from the start, and um, I know that you weren't sort of born in the US, so I was wondering if you could tell the listeners about where you were born and your experience growing up. Sure. I was born in a tiny island in the Caribbean, in the West Indies, St. Lucia. And um, St. Lucia is, um, you might know, the Helen of the West is, is the tagline. It's, um, you know, a tiny island that's sort of gone back and forth between France and, um, and England for, for a long time until winning independence right around the time I was born. Um, I was born there, you know, in the 70s, late 70s, and um, to my mother who... Uh, was 18 at the time. And um, my mother, very soon after I was born, three months after I was born, left to come to the United States. And she left me with my grandparents. And um, I spent, um, you know, the next eight years of my life living with my grandparents uh, until um, I came to the US. 
Okay, and that must have been quite a transition to move from the sunny climes of St. Lucia to the US. Where where in the US did you end up and, and how was that transition as an eight-year-old? Uh, it's a good question. I um, moved in 1986 to uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, um, Brooklyn, New York, and uh, it was a jarring experience. Um, growing up in St. Lucia, although it was sunny and beautiful and I was well-loved, we were very poor and um, we lived in the city. My, my grandmother was a seamstress and my grandfather was a farmer and they were very senior, you know, very, I'm, I think my grandfather passed away in 1995 and he was 95, right? So that was the, um, you know, they were much older and, and had taken on the task of raising me and some of my cousins, um, you know, while our, our mothers were, elsewhere. And, you know, I, I think when I remember that little um, yellow house on Lance Road, um, I remember fond memories, but also that we had no running water um, and no indoor plumbing. And I remember getting electricity uh, and getting, you know, a stove at, at some point when I was uh, a child. Um, and so but I was, like I said, very well loved. So I, I was there with my grandparents. Um, I spent a lot of time outside. I was with my cousins um, and I, I really didn't know any different. And the way people at that time thought about the U.S. was that the U.S. had like streets paved with gold. <laughs> that was the goal was you if you left to go to America, um, you left for this you know, life of prosperity and fortune. And I remember dreaming about that as a child. Um, so when I came to join my mother in Brooklyn um, in 1986, I was startled because one, I had traded one life of poverty for another. I, um, in Brooklyn, 1986, it was probably the height of the crack um, epidemic in, in New York. Um, and we lived in one of the poorest districts in the city. Um, we lived in a huge apartment building. Um, my mother, in the time since she'd been in the States, had been working as a housekeeper for a very wealthy family. And that was how she was able to sponsor me to come to the U.S., right? She worked uh, worked her way to get her residency and then was able to sponsor me. So when I came to the States, um, I, by that time, had a little brother who was living with my mother. And... You know, in retrospect, obviously, when you're eight, you don't know these things. Now, as a, you know, an adult, I can think about how hard it must have been for my mother um, to be at that time, probably 26, with two children um, and growing up and, and, and raising us in that environment um, and also welcoming a child that she had no relationship with. Right. Because I had been living uh, in St. Lucia for for my whole life so it was it was tough <laughs> as a a kid coming into that environment um i needed to learn very quickly yeah how to adapt yeah and so actually adapting i mean you said it was a jarring experience and you had to learn how to adapt i mean in what ways culturally from a language perspective from any other perspective Yes, yes, in all of the above, right? So St. Lucia, um, you know, is a heavy Francophone 
uh, place. And so my grandparents um, spoke mostly French Creole. And I, uh, my maiden name is Altafois, right? So imagine coming to the United States with the name like Leander Altafois with a heavy French accent um, in 1986 uh, in Brooklyn. It was rough. I, you know, I started school. Um, I was a little bit younger than my classmates. I have a December birth date. And um, depending on when your birthday is, you kind of get to go up or stay back. And I had tested in high enough to get into the fourth grade. So I was younger than most of my classmates in the fourth grade. And I, I had a name like Leander <laughs> Altafois. And, um, you know, there was a lot of, of bullying. Um, you know, I think, you know, those kids didn't know how to, you know, handle someone like me. I didn't know how to handle someone like them. And um, I struggled to fit in. Um, you know, I think of, this is a story I don't tell a lot of people, but it took me probably six months to eight months to let my teacher know that she'd been calling me <laughs> by the wrong name. She would call me Altafois and I would answer because, you know, I, <laughs> I assumed that that's what they did here. Um, and when she finally, I think there was like a parent teacher meeting and she realized that my name, that was my last name and not my first name. Um, it occurred to her just how shy I was and how reluctant I was to sort of stick up for myself. Um, and I, at the time, had been focusing on changing my accent because I wanted to sort of fade into the background. <laughs> I didn't want anyone to notice that I, you know, was sticking out, and and that was that was pretty apparent. There used to be this this uh, public radio station called 1010 Winds. Um, it's been a long time since I've been in New York, so I don't know if it's still there, but it was public radio. And I listened to 1010 Winds all the time. And that's how I changed my accent. So, you know, I think back to the fact that most people who meet me have no clue that I was born in the Caribbean, that I have a French, you know, background, um, and that I have any accent at all, because I worked hard in the fourth grade to eradicate it. I think about that often and, and how, you know, what it had to be for, you know, an eight-year-old figuring it out. Um, but it helped me survive, certainly. Yeah, and it's actually so interesting, that story, because we fast forward sort of nearly 40 years from that moment and in applying what you've described to the corporate world, and we still get students who are struggling to fit in, who are looking to change their accent or the way they behave or conduct themselves. And, you know, we are always trying to tell them, try and be yourself because that's yeah. the best yeah. version of you. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it it's, it's something true. that transcends time. You know, I think about... Um, that a lot now as an adult who's sort of comfortable in my shoes. And I just think it's human nature to want to belong. And when you're sort of the other, um, there is a heavy responsibility and burden on you to fit in because, you know, when you are trying to just get along, maybe even to succeed and thrive, you want to eliminate those things about you that make you feel different. Um, it wasn't until later that I figured out that the things that made me different were like my superpower. Right? And um, my husband and I talk about this. There's a, a Malcolm Gladwell, you know, book. And in, in one of those books, he says, you know, um, 
when you acknowledge that your disadvantages become your advantages. Mm -hmm. And it really sort of hit home for me as I look back over the arc of my life, um, that that is really true, that when I am myself, all of myself, I'm the most powerful <laughs> and um, I'm the most able to receive. I'm, you know, I'm not worried about who I am and how I'm going to show up. It, it's the it's the strongest that I feel. Um, and but it took time to to learn that lesson. I think I think the thing that I've been through sort of similar experiences myself, but the thing that you realize over time and I can't sort of tell um, the you know people sort of coming through the system enough is it takes so much energy to try and fit in and that if you apply that energy to actually you know transmit the message that you're trying to transmit or you know write the memo you're trying to write or whatever it might be that it's 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 better used rather than um part of you is sort of spent trying to be something else which is not a natural version of you yeah you know i you know what to be honest um i recognize that it's a privilege for both you and i to say that right because we've achieved a certain level of success in our professional career so we were able to show up i think easier as ourselves um i will tell you when i started here um I would never, my, you could, I don't know, for those who are listening, they can't see me, right? But I've got big curly hair and I would not have showed up to work with big curly hair. I just wouldn't. I, I you know, wanted to fit in even in 2004. And my girl and my girlfriends would say like, oh, you're wearing your corporate hair, <laughs> which is like straight blow dried and, and it fit in because some days I would come in and if my hair looked a little different, someone would make a comment, right? So that took time for me to realize that I could wear my hair curly whatever way I wanted and that I would have to just kind of push through the fact that people were gonna comment because they were gonna comment um, until it became normal so now when I wear my hair straight, people are like, your hair is straight, as opposed to, you know, you're wearing your hair um, big and curly. So I, I do, you, you're absolutely right that I, when I am myself, and I am, um, both at home <laughs> and at work, it just makes me more available, right, for being able to do the work. I'm not as, it's exhausting to pretend. It's exhausting to hide yourself. It's exhausting to worry all the time as to whether people are going to receive you well. Um, but I, I I think it's a privilege for you and I, and I think what we can do is show them how that's worked for us, right? And that you acknowledge that it's understandable why they would want to fit in, um, yeah. but that the sooner they get to the point of, of being their whole selves, the sooner they might actually meet the success. Yeah, and I'm glad you shared that um, story about wearing your hair as, as you do because that is something I actually didn't appreciate myself that black women especially and I says I guess black people more generally um, worry about how they wear their hair at the workplace because they feel they need to fit into I guess a, the white stereotype of having sort of straight neat hair or yeah. at least neat as defined by you know right. a certain part of society it's not right. necessarily right. the definition of neat right that that it, it is it's a very real thing you know just recently in the u.s there have been um you know the the crown act laws have started changing the crown act 
are laws that specifically prohibit discrimination on the basis of of someone's hair. Uh, and that just happened. <laughs> that was right. not, you know, so I definitely think that, um, you know, there are examples of of women, but not only women, black women, you know, who are um, ridiculed or feel diminished because of mm -hmm. the way they're wearing their hair. And it's an impediment right, to success in a corporate world because, you know, I'll be honest, like a, a white woman may not have to worry about that. Right. Uh, not in the same way. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I've digressed because you were eight years old about sort of 10 minutes ago yes. in our conversation. I really want to sort of get from you being eight to um, ending up as a very successful attorney in in, in the U.S. So um, you had to, uh, I guess, transition to the new sort of school um, program that you were on. Uh, did you go through the regular um, school system or were you um sort of picked out um as, as someone who had uh, potential uh, and that potential was nurtured yes you know at the time and i do think this has changed a bit in our system at the time there was a gifted and talented program where you sort of were tracked um into certain classes um based on your grades and test scores and things like that and i you know um was was fortunate enough to be tracked into the gifted program um yeah. so by so i started in the fourth grade in the fifth grade i went into the gifted program and uh and that really sort of turned me into a um put me in a different trajectory right so that led to me going to a middle school for gifted and talented students um you had to apply right? you had there was there was more effort there um, and there were smaller classes and you know I, I learned um, an incredible amount from those teachers some of them have really just still I still talk to some of them um, and I was offered an opportunity to apply for a program called the a better chance program aptly named and it was called a better chance because uh, it offered um, scholarships to students from the inner city who showed, you know, high academic um, performance and potential, and they assisted you in applying to private schools um, that would not otherwise have been available. And I, so I got into the A Better Chance program and applied to a number of schools. And one of the schools that I got into was uh, an all-girls boarding school in Connecticut. Right. Uh, and I, I did accept that scholarship. I went when I was 13 and I was a boarder um, in a very different town <laughs> than Brooklyn, New York. You know, it's sort of bucolic and there are horses <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of wealth um, because, some, you know, obviously it cost a lot then to go to school in, in a place like that. Um, probably the most beautiful place I had seen since I'd been in the States, right? It just, New England is, is beautiful, especially yeah. in the fall. And, um, you know, for a 13 year old who had had, uh, you know, an upbringing in, in, in poor St. Lucia and then poor Brooklyn, this required another point of adjustment um, for me. And did you did you feel like, wow, I've, I've landed in heaven or, um, you know, was it actually an uncomfortable experience to be in that sort of more privileged situation? Yeah, yes, I felt like I was in heaven. It was a little surreal. Um, I was also very angry um, because I, you know, I definitely had a chip on my shoulder yeah. and I 
you know, I was very insecure about whether I belonged there. And, um, you know, the approach I took, because I had become like kind of a brash Brooklyn kind of girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> was I was just going to be tough. I was going to be tougher than the rest of these girls. Um, I was smart, so, you know, I could do the work. Um, and I was just going to be brash. Um, and that really was my persona for all of, of um high school for those four years, I really leaned into being the tough girl from Brooklyn um, who was smart. And I was lucky because it was a small school. So Mm -hmm. my teachers really um, tried to soften some of my edges Mm -hmm. um, and help me see that everything was not like a battle um, and that I didn't need to win at all costs. but that there were lots of learning. And I will say those four years at that school, I'm on the board of trustees now. Um, and my daughter goes to school there, which is really amazing. Like, great to have the legacy. But those four years transformed me and my thinking about myself and my place. Because mm-hmm. I walked in there as a 13-year-old and I did not think that I belonged. And I walked out of there thinking that there was not a room that I could not belong in. That was the that was what happened over those four years. And I really attribute it to those people who saw something special and really tended to that that part of me that needed nurturing um, and needed um, to not feel under attack all the time. Yeah, but I guess, you know, some of the credit for that success lays at your doorstep because you were willing to listen and you were willing to adapt yeah, I um, was, you know, because I look, I like I said, I where I started from, uh, this felt unreal and I really wanted to stay. You know, I, I didn't want to, like, do anything that was going to risk <laughs> this going away. So yeah. I, 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 I think I had no choice, you know, um, or at least I felt like I had no choice and I wanted really badly um to continue to be in this special place and to be treated like I was special um and and I so I agree you know I I definitely have you know I'm I'm a tough person you know Mm -hmm. because I feel like I've had to be um and I was I am and was very stubborn um but I also am a very um like I'm not going back (laughs) you know that's like the thing like I'm like this is only forward um, because I already knew where I came from. And because I had that perspective, you know, it it always sort of, it was like a hand on my back all the time, right? That that I I knew that I that I needed to do certain things to kind of keep um keep from going back. Okay. So when you were at the school, how many black students were in the school? It's a great question. Uh, very few. <laughs> Um, you know, maybe a handful um, in every class, um, and we and were how very big, close. How, and how big was the school, just to give that sort of context? It wasn't huge, uh, you know, a couple of hundred students right. altogether, so it wasn't a huge school, but we were talking maybe there were 10 or 15 in the whole school, mm-hmm. um, and that changed every year, right, because people would graduate, and then you'd start over with maybe one or two or three, um, and so we were we were certainly... Um, the minority. Um, so I, you know, I think um, 
at the time we were able to, um, you know, I was thinking about this, one of my best friends from, from um, that school reminded me that I um, had like started a protest of the local grocery store because they had a, an aisle that didn't have hair products <laughs> and <laughs> or hair products that worked for us, right? Just right. the six girls, you know? Yeah. And I had forgotten completely about that. She was like, don't you remember you like wrote to them? And, you know, and I thought I didn't remember that. Um, but when I thought about it, I remember coming back to school after going to the store and not having gotten anything that I could use for my hair back to mm -hmm. the hair again. And I said to my advisor, like, this is just not fair, right? Like there's all these other products and there's no products for me and these girls. How can you, how can we feel welcome, you know, in this community when like the local store doesn't even recognize? Um, and he encouraged me, his name was John Groff. He encouraged me to write this letter and, you know, um, and went with me to deliver it to like the manager. Um, and I, you know, I think about what it took for like, again, a kid at the time yeah. to feel like you need to do. They did make a change. They created like an ethnic products section, which was also offensive, <laughs> but at least <laughs> we got, at least we got, um, products. Yeah. Um, and I'm happy to say that now there are no ethnic products signs, right? They're just there with all the other shampoo. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, you know, Marsha, uh, my friend, mentioned that to me the other day, and I, I was like, "Wow, I had forgotten about that." Yeah, an agent for, for change from a very young age. Um, so, moving on from school to becoming an attorney, a lawyer, yeah. um, I'm guessing that you probably had a choice of schools um, available to you. Um, what did you decide and why? Yeah. So when I was at, at in high school, I thought yeah. I was going to be a writer. Right. <laughs> that was, I thought I was going to be a, a professor. That's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an English professor. I wanted to teach literature. Um, I had developed a love at, in high school for mm -hmm. Black feminist literature in particular. And um, I was accepted to Wesleyan University, which is, a, you know, a great college here. It's like one of the, they consider like a junior Ivy League. So, um, and it, it was my kind of place, right? Very creative and allowed you to build your own, you know, majors. Um, I was able to do three majors at Wesleyan, uh, English, African-American studies and women's studies, which meant all I did was study literature written by Black women. It was the best four years and the first time, even after my experience in high school, where I felt in charge of like what I wanted to learn, right? And then I could be this person that I thought in my head. Um, and I um, thought I was gonna be an English professor until the very end when I wrote my honors thesis. <laughs> um, and my honors thesis was um, three stories for women based in St. Lucia, right? Which was fantastic. I got yeah. to go back and, you know, um, use that experience um, in my stories. Um, and it was really difficult um, to write. Um, I, I'm a pretty good writer, I think, but it was like giving birth. <laughs> and my professor said to me, you're a very good writer. You're very talented, but you're not disciplined enough. So you have to decide, like, is this the life that you want? Do you want to be like, look around at the other professors and who you think that you want to be? And is that the life that you want to live? It's like the best advice that I had gotten. 
And I did. I took a pause and I thought, I don't really want to be doing this. I want to be doing something that feels more impactful right away, right? Like I need mm -hmm. more instant gratification. Um, and I chose to go to law school um, because I, I took a job right after college in prisons where I right. worked, um, you know, as a consultant um, and really got to see firsthand sort of what our prison system in the U.S. was was like. Uh, and it was devastating to me. And I didn't think I would be a good criminal defense lawyer, but I did think I would be a good policy lawyer, right, that I could affect change in another way. So when I applied to law school and I did have many choices, I chose Howard University and Howard University is a historically black college here, um, the best. <laughs> so all the other ones will say that they are, but Howard's the best. And um, I chose to go there because Charles Hamilton Houston uh, also was a Howard grad and there are all these greats, civil rights greats who went through Howard. And um, there he's a quote called, it says, um, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. And it was like a lightning bolt when I read that. I thought, that's that's the that's the kind of lawyer I want to be. That's the place that I want to be. Um, and I turned down more money <laughs> um, and probably more prestigious schools on paper to go mm -hmm. to Howard because I really wanted to be around um, Black students. Uh, like me, and I really wanted to learn in the style of, you know, the greats. And um, it was a, the best decision that I could have made. Um, I, I learned a lot. It prepared me to be a great lawyer. Um, and uh, I'd do it again, you know, in a second. That's amazing. Um, it, it really is inspiring. So, I mean, it's quite a journey that we've sort of touched upon, sort of St. Lucia, Brooklyn, the gifted program, the better chance sort of program, um, Howard sort of university, um, and a whole sort of variety of sort of growing as a person and experiences that have sort of shaped um, the, the person that you are today. Um, so how have all of these experiences shaped your leadership style? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I have learned that um, when there's crisis, uh, and because I've had personal crisis is the thing that's been pushing me, I think, along throughout my childhood, um, that I am best when I'm still. So I learned long ago to be still when there was chaos. And that became sort of my calling card, <laughs> that clients uh, and other people um, I think are attracted to my sort of steadiness uh, when things are not steady. Um, what, what do you mean when you say I'm still? What, what does that mean in reality? I, I sort of slow things down. <laughs> um, so I get to step out of the storm, right? Because the storm is is doing its thing. And I think when you're facing the storm, you can either become part of the storm or you can like, you know, step out of it. And I have found that when I slow down, I can see more <laughs> and then I can actually maybe affect and shape how the storm is is, is going. I can think better. Um, and I, I think that it helps me be less emotional about things. It helps me 
you know, calm my clients down when they're very emotional about whatever's going on. Um, and I do think that that skill is something that was born out of my childhood. You know, it is, I needed to be the calm person. I needed to be the steady. I needed to be like very present and I needed to slow it down so that I could impact it. Uh, and that has helped me quite a bit in my leadership style. You know, when I I, I have never led this firm without a pandemic. <laughs> so I was elected <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic and I am the person who's like, okay, well, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but let's focus on what we do know, right? <laughs> let's focus on what we can do. Uh, and I do think that has that that's, you know, sort of a hallmark of my leadership style. I also make sure that people um, feel that they belong. I, I do a lot of, list, lot of listening mm -hmm. um, because it's very personal to me because of because of when I was a kid and didn't belong. So I, I want I want people, whether it's the secretary or like the partner, to feel like you know I'm listening and that their point of view matters, even when we don't agree. <laughs> and um, I think that is something that has helped me um, build trust, um, you know, in, in my leadership uh, over time. And I think that people see me being myself mm -hmm. and that's comforting. <laughs> you know, I think they're like, oh, well, if she can be herself, then, you know, I can be myself, you know, um, and I, I am still stubborn. Um, you know, I am still, um, I, st I work very hard, uh, because yeah. I think that you have to, um, and I, I tell the truth, <laughs> you know, that it, that if it's hard, it's hard. I tell people, um, and then I, I, I do try to get people, um, to move forward. I, you know, I cannot stand inertia. I cannot stand when people are like, this is what's happening to me, right? I am. I believe very much in being the captain of my ship and that's how I lead, right? Like I tell people like, this is not happening to you, right? Like this is like the world is, is, is there are things going on, but you're an active participant in your life. You get right. to choose. We you know, will have some influence over our destiny, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and that, that helps people when they're feeling that they don't want to work here anymore, right? Or that they feel like they don't want to practice anymore. I'm like, you know, guess what? Like, you don't have to. Like, you yeah. every day that you show up here, you are choosing, uh, and isn't that empowering? <laughs> like, and when you decide that you are choosing um, to to do anything, um, it just puts you in the driver's seat. And that that is something again. Like I told you in in, in high school, that's the thing that got me through was that I realized I needed to listen. I needed to be the person, sort of whatever it was that was pushing me, I needed to be like the person making the decisions. And I couldn't blame anyone else. I couldn't, you know, my childhood is what it is. And the people who disappointed me, they did. Um, and the question was, what was I going to do about my life? And I think um, that helps me every day. Every day I show up to this job, I'm choosing to do this job. Uh, and it feels good. Yeah, yeah, I, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because you know, you've you've clearly used all of your experiences in a positive way in that it's taught you a lesson and you've used that lesson to, 
you know, build, um, I guess, your personality, your resilience to, you know, become the person and the leader that you are today? Yeah, you know what, I will say, I mean, because thanks to good therapy, I go every two weeks, (laughs) we talk about this stuff. And I talk about fear quite a bit, right? Because I think fear is definitely part of my life, um, right? Like, what am I afraid of? Am I, you know, am I afraid to lose? Am I afraid, you know, what what am I afraid of? Um, and I learned a long time ago that I had to do it afraid. Like, you hear that all the time. It's probably like a cliche. Um, but you have to do it even when you're not sure, <laughs> even when you know, even when you're afraid, um, because I'm not sure that there's ever a time when you're like unafraid. (laughs) And I have become much more accepting that, that, that I have fear and that I figure out what levers that fear is pulling, (laughs) right? And then I do the thing that I feel like I need to do, even though I'm, you know, I'm afraid. And I, I think that you know, people who say that they're not afraid are not telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can certainly relate to that. I mean, I I think fear is a motivator. Um, uh, I mean, for some people, it can be um, a paralyzing sort of yes, um, yeah. uh, give a, have a paralyzing effect. But I I think you know an appropriate amount of fear can actually be good motivation. Exactly. Exactly. You don't want it to control you. But no. you need to know how it's showing up, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, when I was first approached to be the managing partner, um, I was afraid because <laughs> I thought I've never done that before. You know, am I ready to do that? Uh, why are people picking me? Uh, what if I fail? Um, and and my husband said, you know, like you're not ever not going to be afraid about it, you know. <laughs> um, and by the way, do you think, you know, all these like white men are not afraid? <laughs> they're afraid. They're just they're doing it. And I was like, you know, I think it was it was a good gut check for me. Um, and I think we can have fear limit us. Um, and I, I think when I when I do it afraid, I feel very, very proud. Brilliant. Um, and, and, and well done. Um, I wanted to move the conversation along, um, Leander, if that's okay, onto the topic of role modeling. Um, at Travis Smith, we talk about role models and the role that they can play in helping illuminate career paths and to signal that it's okay for people to be themselves, something that we've already touched upon. Um, what do you think about this idea of role models? I think that it is so important. Um, that we have them right? and uh, and that we identify them even when they aren't as readily apparent, right? So when, as I mentioned, when I started at the firm um, and there was one, one black partner um, male at our firm and I did think of him as a role model, um, but most, the people who were really my role models were like other women, um, black women who were not even at my firm and who uh, were kind of doing it at the same time that I was doing it. Um, and I was kind of watching what was happening to my left and watching what was happening to my right. And we were, we've, you know, sort of, we cheer each other on. 
Um, those people really became my role models. They still are. Some of them had been practicing a couple of years before, you know, ahead of me. Um, but there was such an absence of like what a black female equity partner looked like in mm -hmm. a big firm in Connecticut or, you know, um, that I, I had to kind of be creative about who my role models are. Um, and just I to, do think- Just to interrupt, sorry. Um, the, 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 the black male sort of partner that you referred to, did he see himself as a role model? I think he did. You know, he really, um, I thought about him recently. He's actually no longer at our firm, but I, um, I reached out to him recently because, you know, the things that he did, I'm not sure that I could have been as successful if he if he had not been here sort of aiding things along. Um, you know, there's this conference that happens every year. It's called the Corporate Council Women of Color. And it's this huge conference. It's now huge. When I started, it was very small, just a couple of hundred women. Now there's like a thousand, which tells you like what has happened over the last several years. Yeah. And that partner insisted that the firm send me um, to that conference. Um, insisted every single year that I went. This year we're sending three people, which I think is is phenomenal. Um, and we have over the years sent someone or multiple people every year. Um, and I think about there were times where that conference was the thing that kept me going, <laughs> that that I could be there. And I, the first time I walked into the conference, uh, it was in Las Vegas, and. I couldn't believe that there were all these black women lawyers. Yeah. I've never seen it before. I was like, I had chills. Like I was like, oh my God, like this. And now, like I said, now there's a thousand. At the time it was like a couple of hundred, you know, maybe 200 max. Um, and so I I think without that partner making sure that I had this opportunity to see other people like me who were toiling. <laughs> in private practice, who were toiling in-house um, at various levels. You know, some of the women who were the first in their firm, just like I was. Um, so it, he was, of course, a role model because he was the only one here. But what he did was provided opportunities for me to see others. Um, and that, I just cannot overstate how much that has meant to me in my career. Um, and I. I hope that I'm doing a little bit of the same for the women who are coming up behind me. Great, um, and, and good for you. Um, and do you, do you think there's an extra pressure on black people, especially in business, to act as a certain kind of role model? Yes, <laughs> I do. Um, you know, it's funny, I, have, I had this great mentor, uh, still do, he's a white man here at the firm. And he, he, he was, you know, like I say, he was my mentor assigned to me. Yeah. And I was sharing with him a few years ago before I became a partner, the pressure I was feeling, you know, that I that I could not fail, that I, you know, that if I failed, I would be letting down like a lot of people. And he was like, why do you feel that way? <laughs> you know, like, it's just you. And I and it occurred to me that he did not have that pressure, that he did not feel that responsibility at all. Um, and I do think that there is an extra pressure. There is less room, less margin for error. Um, and I, it's not that it's just an intentional, you know, overt racism. It's that there are so few of us that when there is a mistake, it feels bigger, like the magnitude mm -hmm. is bigger. Um, and you can't really control how that plays, right? So if like, if there's a black person who doesn't pass the bar here, 
like there's a pause, right? First, because it's just the one. If if it isn't a black person, then you're just kind of like, oh, like that person didn't pass the bar and it's okay, right? Um, yeah. So I think we'd be fooling ourselves to say that there isn't extra pressure, internal and external, um, on black people um, to be excellent. Um, I can tell you that over the my, course of my career, I've often been surprised at the mediocre <laughs> straight white men who have achieved lots of success. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't have special gifts, but I'm like, if I spoke that way, I wouldn't be here. If I wrote that way, I wouldn't be here. If I, you know, uh, any number of things. And I, one of the experiences that I've had is when I was doing more practice, you know, I was leading a very big case, um, a sexual assault case in, in one of our schools. And um, I'd had another lawyer, a male lawyer, kind of doing most of the grunt work. But when it came time to resolve the case, you know, I show up. Mm -hmm. And the mediator, who was a woman, she just kept on talking to him. And I was like, but you should be talking to me because I'm the person who, who's going to make the decision. I'm the one who's leading this. Um, and that happened to me over and over again. If I went into a courtroom, um, they would assume that I was not the lawyer. If I went into, you know, and it would be the people at the security desk, like guiding yeah. me to the line that wasn't for the lawyer. And then it would be in the courtroom. Um, so there is an expectation that you sort of show up and 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 say like, oh, I'm the lawyer. And oh, by the way, I'm this. Uh, and I do think that that is not something that a lot of my straight male peers in particular, um, white male peers have had to deal with. Um, it's both race and gender, I just want yeah. to say, because it's not yeah. just the one. Um, so I, I think that there are there are different standards, even if they're not explicit, because I want to say that I don't I don't know that there's a whole bunch of people who are explicitly, you know, trying to hold people to a different standard. I just think it is. And the, and the studies have borne that out, that when people evaluate without names, two documents if mm -hmm. they think that they're the same and if you put names on it and people think that the person is a person of color that they grade them differently uh yeah. and and that's uh you know we've done a lot of work at our firm on implicit bias because of that um because i do think that the reason why there aren't more people like me here and at other firms is likely because of implicit bias and as you're talking, um, the question that sort of occurred to me is that um, when black women especially sort of show up or speak out, and sometimes the accusation can be made to them that they're an angry black woman. Yes. And, um, what advice would you give to people who perhaps are perceived in that way to try and overcome that perception? That's a good question, because as I said to you earlier, when I went to high school, I was an angry kid, you know, um, and I think legitimately so, right? Like life had been hard um, and I uh, I needed to like be this like tough on the offensive person. So it was a coping mechanism at the time. It was very useful. Um, but I did adjust, right, that like I'm very mindful that how I show up uh, angry, um, sends a message. Um, and I, you know, <laughs> I had a, a, a colleague once say that I yell without raising my voice, which is actually 
um, I had until that person said it, right? I hadn't realized it because I, you know, when I get stern or angry, like I said, I, I kind of actually get quiet, right? I get more still because I, mm -hmm. I instead of going big, I kind of, you know. But but she said, you know, you 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 yell <laughs> without yelling. You tell like you are clear that you're angry, and I bet that you know it's because I'm trying not to appear right as if i've lost control or as if i am you know aggressive or um i'm pr like i said i'm i'm tough and you know lots of people have underestimated me in 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 cases and um until i've like yelled without yelling <laughs> yeah. um but i agree with you that this shows up for not only black women but black men my husband is now a, a principal at a school right he's kind of a bigger black guy you know and and he is ever mindful that if he is scolding a child or someone who works for him, that people are going to think he's angry, right? As opposed to just scolding like any other administrator would. It's it shows up in very real way, and it it affects the way you, you it affects your style. You know, yeah. so I I think that um, one way that I have done that, and what my advice would be is do not not be angry. You should you should be angry if you know you have good reasons to be. I do think that anyone who is yelling, um, people stop listening. Right? Um, and I do think that it, if your goal is to be heard, you have to figure out what's the best way that works for you to get your point across, including that you are angry or disappointed or um, that you found something lacking. So it isn't about not showing up and saying, you know, this is not acceptable or uh, it is about finding what works for you to be most effective. And I have found that for me, losing losing it is not effective because then it becomes about the fact that I've lost it. And, you know, uh, instead of the thing that I am trying to get across. Sure, sure. Um, and I guess, you know, as one of four black managing partners of a, of a U.S. law firm. I mean, you very much are seen as a role model by, I'm sure, many attorneys who are um, on their journey, um, either as associates or sort of partners who are hoping to sort of progress into management. Any any advice for them? Um, <laughs> persist. Um, I think that um, there isn't any perfect workplace. Um, and I I think that we have a lot to do in the legal industry. Um, and it is true that I think the burden on fitting into the industry falls on us more than, than others. But I do think that one of the first things that, that allowed me to become the managing partner is because I stayed. <laughs> like there's a lot of people who are excellent lawyers, excellent leaders, um, and who who sort of they checked out because it was hard, and they checked out because they're like, why would I stay here if this is the things that are, these are the things that are going on? Uh, and I do think there are a lot of black women who leave the in, who leave the profession, mm -hmm. um, and I just could be honest about it. Some of it was that I I, I didn't, I stayed. Um, and I I made people see me. <laughs> um, 
and I like in other words, I was not invisible, like I wasn't shrinking. Um, but I also, um, you know, I decided that I I did want to do this type of work. Um, I did ultimately start thinking about the law firm as a business because again, when I was just a practicing lawyer, you know, you're thinking about your practice <laughs> and you're not really thinking about the business. Sure. And I'm very interested in the business side of, of the law. And I, my advice is, you know, to, to, to think critically about what kind of, what kind of career you want to have. Um, and don't stay where people, you know, are not treating you well, right? Because that is not what I'm saying at all. Um, but, I would say that you should be looking to find a place where um, your particular gifts and your particular contributions are going to be recognized. And then it allows you to do like the next thing and the next thing. Um, and I do think that there, the, the fact that I've stayed means that now there's, you know, much more diversity in our equity partnership. I <laughs> think the fact that I've stayed you know, has meant other people are coming on and, and that other people see leaders um, that look like me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we did after the George Floyd uh, incident uh, killing, um, you know, a series of courageous conversations at the firm. And one of the questions was sort of, when was the first time you had had a, a person of color who, as a boss? And there were lots of people in, in, in our firm where I'm the first person that has ever been, they, I'm the first leader of color that they've ever had, maybe the first woman even. Yeah. And I I recognize that um, and they get to see how someone who looks like me leads, right? And I'm not a perfect leader, but like, you know, they get to see that, you know, uh, now forever, they will have had someone who's a woman of color, right, um, as a boss. And um, I, of course, recognize that I, I'm, you know, I still have that responsibility. It doesn't go away um, to make sure that I do it well. But I also, um, I, I think it's important for people to see that they too can do it, right? And that that you don't have to, you know, um, that, that the more of us who show up for it, maybe the more opportunities there will be for other people like me. Yeah, I mean, we, we so often hear from, you know, graduates who are looking to break into firms and, and associates who are looking to progress up the career ladder, that they having um, le leadership examples, partners who are non-white yeah. is yeah. in itself an inspiration that if, well, yeah. if they can do it, um, if they did it, they, you know, the student or the associate can do it too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it, it is hard to be what you cannot see. It is. Um, yeah. And I think that that we owe it to our industry to make sure that there are good examples. Um, and and the, the pace of change is really anemic. I mean, the United States is a big place. There are lots and lots of law firms, lots and lots of big firms. The fact that there are only four in these here United States is appalling. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I do think that that um, when I became when I was elected, uh, to this role, but even before when I was elected to be an equity partner, the number of people who came up to me um, in the firm and outside the firm who said, this means so much to me to see you mm -hmm. in this role, in this seat, <laughs> right? Um, 
it would bring me to tears. Like people I don't know, right, would see me at an event and they'd be like, oh, you know, I just want you to know. Um, it, it It is still incredible. I feel, like I said, I feel the responsibility of, of being the one that people are looking at. But I also feel that it is inspiring other people. And then I hope that one day we're not talking about like, you know, a handful uh, and that this won't even be an issue anymore. That people won't be saying, oh, you're the first. Like, I can't wait for that. Um, and I am honored that I'm at least part of changing that narrative. And and I think you 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 definitely are. And it's it's one big step in, in, in a long journey. Um, Leander, I wanted to change the topic of conversation to allyship. Um, I'd like us to explore the concept of allyship and what more the majority or people in positions of influence and power can do to support the marginalised. We talk a lot about this at our firm and have spent some time exploring what actions people can take to better support black and minority ethnic communities. I'd be keen to hear more from you about what effective allyship looks like. I think that allyship is hugely important uh, in all of these spaces that where the majority continues to sort of be the majority. Um, and I, I think that the biggest piece about it is that, you know, allyship requires intent and commitment. <laughs> in other words, it requires like I am well-meaning. I want to be an ally. And mm -hmm. also, I am committed to being an ally, despite when it's not going well, despite the fact that it's taking a long time, you know, um, that it's sustained um, and that it takes effort um, to be an ally, that you are seeking opportunities to amplify someone else who's not like you, that your role in as being an ally is not only to say, oh, I'm, I'm supporting you, but also that I am helping advance you, <laughs> that I am I'm helping to make sure that people who hadn't thought about you are thinking about you. And I'm the beneficiary of that. There's this woman here who is now one of my closest friends. Uh, she's our general counsel. Um, mm -hmm. And she was a partner here when I started. And um, she, I know because I've seen her do it, not just for me, but for others, that there's no way that I would be in this role if, if she, her name is Anne, had not many years ago said, you should think about Leander to lead this committee, or you should think about Leander to do this case, or you should think about Leander to, to why would, why not? Why not have Leander on the management committee, even though she's younger and even, you know, why, yeah. if she had not done those things and used her influence, right, which she had earned um, yeah. as one of the very few women on the management committee, if she had not done that, um, then I don't think I'm here. I don't. I think that it allowed other people to see me in a way that Anne saw me um, and to open up more opportunities for me. And so I make sure, and I've seen Anne do it for other people. So I, I see her as a role model on how to be a good ally. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm doing the same thing. So I think about Although I am a minority here in the in the profession, there are other ways that I'm actually quite privileged, right? I'm not, I don't have a disability. Um, mm -hmm. I am not gay. Um, and you know, there are other other populations of people who need my voice, right? That yeah. I can amplify both for black women or black people and people of color and people who are underrepresented, and also say, you know, hey, why don't our 
you know, why our off, our conference rooms are not accessible. <laughs> they are not good enough. You know, I get to say, have you thought about this person who, um, because they look a certain way, even if they're white, um, you have discounted them, right? Um, you have ignored their contributions or ability to contribute because the way they look makes you uncomfortable. Uh, and I have had the experience and now I have the position of influence that I can do that, right? And I would, I every day I think about like, make sure that I'm showing up in the room. And when I don't do it, because it's hard to do it all the time, I I, I remind myself that it's a long-term commitment that I have to keep, you know, showing up and, and, and saying, what about this person? Uh, and why not this person? <laughs> And have we done all we should to make sure that we're providing opportunities for others who are not often in the room? Um, so that I think you have to you have to pay it forward um, when you're in my role. Uh, and I think a good ally um, understands what their job is <laughs> and um, kind of throws their whole self into doing it. Um, so yeah, I think that's what I would do. Yeah, I think what what you say about sort of championing others when they're not in the room and paying it forward are so important. I mean, both yes. for people who perhaps haven't sort of suffered the disadvantage mm -hmm. um, and but also people who have suffered the disadvantage and actually remembering that and making it easier for the next person. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't want to waste the seat. <laughs> That's the truth. Now that I'm in the room, yeah. I don't want to waste it. And I think the way I can make sure I don't waste it is to make room for other people. Um, and I, I do think that, that that's the right answer. Um, I think that we are all better off when there are new people in the room who, you know, new perspectives in the room. Um, it just expands the whole thing. It expands strategy. It expands um, the learning. Uh, and I've, like I said, I've lived that. So I know that to be the case. And I, it's my job to make sure that I'm, I'm doing that for other people. Yeah, and I think it's sort of, you know, well accepted nowadays at least that diversity of thought actually leads to better decision making and improved business performance as well. So yeah. you, know, you can do it for the right reasons, which are fundamentally, you know, everyone should have an equal opportunity, but you can also do it for good business reasons as well, because it actually yeah. leads to a better business outcome. I agree. I agree, and I've seen it. You know, um, again, I'm using an example that's not about race or gender, but you know, one of um, our chair of our firm is, is someone that you know I care about a great deal. He's in his 60s, and um, the perspective that we come at things very differently, right? And we've learned a lot from each other, um, and it proves out what you're saying is that when you have diversity of thought and perspective and experience, you get a better business outcome, right? Like every day that I talk to Kent, <laughs> um, we end up with a better, in a better place, you know, on, on the decisions that are being made for our firm. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, truly a believer of that. Well, Leander, we have been speaking for quite some time now and I really cannot thank you enough for sparing the time, firstly, 
um, today uh, for sharing your journey, which is, I think, truly remarkable and, um, and continues as well. And also for your very intelligent and insightful sort of thoughts and comments. And I'm sure um, the listeners um, will be inspired by your story um, to um, progress. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I was very flattered when when you asked. And, um, you know, this has been a great conversation because it's allowed me to sort of think about things um, that 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 have really shaped my career and my life, my point of view. Uh, and I'm just very grateful for the opportunity. So thank you for the time. Um, and I look forward, maybe one day I'll come see you in London. It should be great. Well, that would be amazing. So thank you to you and thank you to all the listeners for listening as well. Thank you.